The question that I want to start with today as we look at uh, the parable we're going to look at today is, have you ever wondered who you're responsible for helping? I mean, who in all of the world and all the brokenness and all the situations going on, who, who, whose situation has your name on it? Among all the people who have needs in our church, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, where are you supposed to be involved? And we could go deeper and, and even question, what about outside of our normal circles? Because most of the time, the people that I know that have needs are a lot like me because they're in my circles already. They're, they're like me because we live near each other, work together, go to church together. Jesus once told a story in response to a question that was posed by a religious leader that kind of helps us sort through who are we supposed to be a friend to? And what does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to be a helper and a neighbor to someone in need? The parable that we're going to look at is found in Luke 10, if you want to open your Bibles there. But it came in response to a question from a religious scholar, a legal scholar, Jewish legal scholar, who was well-versed in the intricacies of the Jewish law. So I'm going to read the, uh, the setup, I guess, for this parable, for lack of a better term, in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. So these verses have a lot in them we could unpack, but I want to use them to kind of set up the parable that we're going to talk about today. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this guy obviously wanted to trap Jesus. He was not sincere in his standing up, which, by the way, in that culture, standing up would be a sign of respect for a rabbi. So a, a student who wanted to ask a question would stand up as a sign of respect for a rabbi. So everyone else around probably thought, this man is a follower. He wants to know from Jesus. But we know from his question and from the text here that he really wasn't. He was a skeptic wanting to embarrass Rabbi Jesus. And he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which seems kind of odd because what should anyone do to inherit anything? Inheritance by definition is something you get without doing something. So to, to ask what should I do is, is a little counterintuitive. But this is, this is not an uncommon question among Jewish intellectuals at the time. They, they, would, they would banter about issues like this and questions like this to know what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I gain the promises of God? Things like that. The learned inquirer, and so Jesus asked him, turned the tables on him and asked him how he would read the law. What do you think? And the man said, you should love God and love other people. The commandments from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19. And then Jesus affirmed his reply, you know, do that and you'll live. And it's hard to know what Jesus was really getting at when he affirmed that. Was he saying, Yes, do that and you'll live. In other words, in, in those commands are the heart of God. And so if you do those, you will be honoring God. Or, or was he saying, yeah, if you can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love everybody as yourself, you don't need any help. You're good. We don't know what Jesus was saying or what his approach was to him. But then the expert followed up with another question. Again, not genuine, wanting to trip Jesus up. And he he. Jesus used that question then, um, who's my neighbor, to set up this parable. 
And the heart of it is the tendency that we have for caring for those in our own group, for having a very limited perspective on who God has called us to love and care for and serve. And there's good reason to care for people like us, but this religious leader probably didn't feel any obligation under God to care for anybody's needs outside of his own sect of Judaism, that his own belief system, that anyone beyond that wasn't even someone he was supposed to reach out to. But we all have a greater responsibility, a greater privilege to care for the needs of people that we discover in our lives, to care for the people in our world who are broken, who are seeking help. I'm sure you're not much different than me. I have my community, my church family, my neighborhood, my workplace, the families and friends that my children have. And, and we tend to be kind of like each other. And this parable is going to challenge us to break out of that. So the question that the religious leader asked is not far from the question that we might ask. Who are we obligated to help, especially outside of our comfortable community interactions? Who are we responsible to help? outside of our comfortable community interactions. We hear this query in our society. As Christians, we have to wrestle with this, not just politically as we're kind of, our, our culture wants us to do, but, but spiritually and relationally before God. What is our duty to the unborn? What is our duty, not just to the unborn, what is our duty to that teenage girl who has a, trouble, who has a, a surprise pregnancy? What's our duty to racial minorities, to undocumented immigrants, to, to extremists? What's our, what's our duty to broken people who've been caught up in a machine that tears them apart, to homeless people, to people with mental illness, to prisoners, to people of different religions? What, what's our responsibility to people whose minds and lives are deceived by the lies of the enemy and other religious systems? We could go on and on, the challenges of sorting through our own biases, sorting through our own filters and asking those kinds of questions. So Jesus explains not just what a neighbor is not, but what a neighbor is. But the biggest takeaway I want to say right now, and then we're going to talk about the story, is that this parable illustrates a Christ-like view of all people. That has to be our takeaway, is that we we are called to, and God wants us to have a lens that looks at every person in our lives like Christ would look at them. And sometimes I, I put those glasses down and I look through judgment or I look through busyness or I look through my own agenda and we need to know how we're looking. So let's, let's read this story. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead alongside the road. By chance, a priest came along. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. And he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. So we see that Jesus turned the tables on this religious scholar. 
Instead of asking the, answering the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus answered a question, am I a neighbor? Am I a neighbor? Am I someone who is caring? Now we have to work really hard to understand this parable today because the terms are all messed up in our understanding. We, if you've been around church very long at all, or even in our culture, Samaritans are good guys and Jewish leaders are bad guys. That, that's kind of how we think. So we have to undo that in our own minds. The term good Samaritan has become a term of someone who helps someone. I, I read a news article a few weeks ago about a man who uh, I think had a heart attack and died in a parking lot of a hospital in St. Charles. And, and the news story was talking about someone who was walking through the parking lot and came to this man's aid. And right there in the newspaper, and a good Samaritan stopped by. And so we are totally, totally opposite of how the original listeners would have heard the term Samaritan because we tend to think that's a good guy in the story. That was not the assumption of the first century Jewish community that Jesus was talking to. Samaritans were hated by Jewish people. They had intermarried with the Syrian invaders 400 years earlier. They were looked at as polluting and corrupting the, the worship of God's people. So it, you could not get much lower than a Samaritan. They were viewed as traitors. So this man was traveling, this Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem to, or to Jericho. And he was on this journey. It was about 20 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was downhill. Jerusalem sits high on a mountain, 2,500 feet above sea level. That's why you always read of went down from Jerusalem. You go down from Jerusalem, regardless of what direction you're going, because it was sitting on a mountain. And Jericho was about 800 feet below the sea level. And the bluffs were rocky and plenty of places for bandits to hide. In fact, here's a picture of the road to Jericho. So you can see the kind of terrain and you're going through caves and mountains and valleys and canyons to get there. And there are plenty of places for robbers to hide. And it was a very dangerous place to be. And this man fell prey to the group of outlaws there who robbed him and beat him up and left him for dead. The callousness, the violence, the utter disregard for life is something we have to recognize. Because friends, that's going on all around us, isn't it? The violence, the callousness, the utter disregard for life. This story is not unlike stories of our journey every day. People who we walk by who are attacked, who are beaten up and robbed and left for dead by drug addiction, disease, shattered relationships, divorce, sexual assault, we have, we have babies who are ill, who are suffering, struggling because their, their mom used drugs when, they were, when she was pregnant. We have, we have teens that are unable to deal with the pressures of life who are contemplating suicide, just ending it all. We have disease and emotional illness and physical injuries. And then, and then you add the false teachings and the spiritual problems and the, the multiple philosophies of what's right and how we live and how we relate to one another these are just some of the wounds that we have. So let's talk about the responses of the characters in the story a little bit. The first negative lesson comes at the hand of a priest, and that is a neighbor is not too holy. A neighbor is not too holy. From him, we learn that we're not too holy, too, too righteous, too far above people in need. 
The text says that the priest was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, saw the man and actually went over to the other side of the road to get around him. He recognized the situation, but he was too holy with his professional duties to stop and be soiled by helping this man who was on the road beaten up. One would think that his place as a priest would draw him to greater mercy. Would, would create in him a heart of compassion and outreach. But that was not the case. He was too pious in his religious system. If, he would have, if this man would have been dead and he would have touched him, he would have been ceremonially unclean. So he would have had to go through this ritual to be cleansed again. And other people would have known that. We don't know. Maybe he was an up and coming priest. And so he wanted to impress the guys above him and help the guys below him. But, but he just he ignored this man's need. In seeking to remain undefiled, he became uncaring. And that's a danger for us too. In seeking to remain undefiled, we can become uncaring. You care for people, sometimes you get injured. Sometimes, sometimes the, 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 the filth of brokenness impacts us as we care. His mind might have been preoccupied with his next assignment. We don't know. But he was too focused on, on being good, on being that man who is good, to do good, to actually stop and let his life be interrupted by someone who's broken. How often does that happen to me? How often does that happen to you? Where I'm going about my life and, and I, I'm, I'm serving God after all. And yet my agenda in serving God overcomes God's agenda for me serving him because I miss the people who he's called me to, to serve. Do you recall a time when maybe you even avoided a situation because you didn't want to get involved because it would, it would maybe impact you or how people looked at you? It changes you when you enter into the pain of someone else. Sometimes it wounds you when you enter into the pain of others. So a neighbor's not too holy. <clears throat> a neighbor's also not too busy. This is the next guy. This guy's a Levite, teaches us this lesson. Levites were the temple liturgists. They were set up for worship. They were the ones who kind of facilitated the assistance to the priests. And so think of them as like worship leaders of the Jewish religion. The text says that unlike the priest, this guy actually probably even stopped and went over and took a look, which is even more troubling, isn't it? Because he went over and looked and he maybe thought about it, maybe considered what it would be like to stop and to help this guy. You would think as the worship leader, he would have compassion, but he doesn't. Getting involved would be costly, would impact him, his reputation, his agenda, what he was going to be doing. And, and this is not just a New Testament concept of helping people. Even the Old Testament, apart from which we don't have time to get into, apart from those sections in the Old Testament where God clearly commands his people to purge unrighteousness from his people, from the land. Um, the Old Testament is full of commands and instructions on how God's people ought to care for other people, family members, travelers, aliens in the land, how, how God wants his people to have lenses that see. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 1, 
Mary's song of praise is recorded there. And, and I like this because it's kind of a bridge from that Old Testament way God was working in Israel to the, the ministry of God through Christ and then leading into the ministry of God through the Holy Spirit, which is the days that we're living in now. But listen to just these two verses from Luke chapter 1, verses 51 and 52 in Mary's song of praise after, uh, as a promise of Jesus, the Messiah was announced. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down the princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. Humility, that's what God calls us to. He calls us to serve this world, to serve to be a, a change agent in the brokenness of this world, in the brokenness of our neighborhoods and workplaces, not through great strength, not through busyness in ministry, not through being, you know, quote unquote, holy and being separate from people, but by being humble and entering into those areas as Christ calls us to. <clears throat> so rather than trying to answer the impossible question about those needs we can't touch, we need to be asking the question, God, who are you taking me to today? Who in my life is broken and you're calling me to stop pursuing my agenda and to pursue yours? And I would even go a little bit farther that I think if we're living obediently to God, if we're listening to the voice of God in our lives, he is actually probably going to take us into some areas that are not comfortable for us. And like I said, I tend to see the people that are like me. I think if I'm really following God, sometimes that's not being obedient because sometimes God says, you need to leave there is, a, there is a community in North St. Louis that needs the gospel. There is a community over here that needs the gospel. Those prisoners need someone to come in and visit them. And it's easy to say, but God, it's not where I'm at. So let's talk now about the neighbor who was concerned. Let's talk about this Samaritan man for a little bit. Another traveler comes down who demonstrates what a neighbor is. Jesus' audience probably would have been expecting because he said the, the priest and the Levite, so someone's going to come in and be a hero. So they were probably thinking it's going to be a non-Jewish clergy or non-clergyman Jew, right? Someone who's still of our Jewish people, still like us, but just not a clergy person. But Jesus shatters that. That wasn't the case at all. This Samaritan man, this enemy, enemy of the people of Israel, saw this man and did what none of the other, neither of the other travelers would do. He was genuinely concerned, and that, we have to capture that. Before he did anything to help, his heart went out in compassion for the brokenness. That's key to this story. <clears throat> he binds up his wounds. He anoints him with oil. He loads him on his mule, takes him to an inn to recuperate, leaves money for the innkeeper to take care of him. And says, I'll, if, you, if you go over this, put it on my tab. I'm going to pay it when I get back. In doing this, he probably put himself in danger. He already was not looked at very favorably. So to take this Jewish man and help him and go to the inn where there are probably a lot of other people who didn't like him already, he was putting himself in danger as he was trying to help this man. I recently read a book called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin, which I, I highly recommend uh, you want a troubling book in a good sense because Nick Ripkin is a pseudonym, but he was a missionary in the early 80s. He was, went to Somalia uh, and <clears throat> went into this war-torn 
country, violence everywhere, the heart of the war going on. It was just destruction all over. Seven million people lived in Somalia when he went in there. And the Christians in Somalia probably would fill a little bitty country chapel in our country. And, and he felt God calling him to go in there. And in his story, early in his conversion and call to be a missionary, he talked about how comforting it was when he looked in the Bible and he, he just drew that principle that when you're following God, he's gonna keep you safe. He's gonna keep you secure. And he said when he got into Somalia and was there for a short time, this was his prayer. What in the world did you expect me to do here, Lord? There are no churches. There are hardly any Somali believers. <clears throat> There's nothing that I know how to do here. I'm hopelessly lost. I'm all alone behind enemy lines. Please, Jesus, get me out of here. It's not safe. It's not secure. And sometimes we need, we need to understand God takes us to places that don't feel safe, that, that there is real danger. There's, now, of course, we know God's God. He's sovereign. He's called us to places. But <clears throat> God doesn't call us just to be safe. He calls us to get into the messy stuff of broken lives. And that's where we go after this. He became actively involved in the situation, which is what a neighbor does. It's what a friend does. A neighbor is actively involved. He likely used his own clothes for the bandage, used his own oil, used his own wine, his own animal, his own lotion, his own money. <clears throat> See, following God is costly. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I have to admit, I've, I've settled into it being not that costly at times. And this parable is one of those parables that shakes us up and say, no, cost, it's costly to follow God if we do it right. <clears throat> because... We're sacrificing our agenda and we're letting God's agenda guide us. Now, there's an important lesson here that I want to share that I think is, I think is timely for us today in our culture. Uh, it's too easy for us today in 2021 in St. Louis to mistake getting involved in a cause with helping somebody. And I'll share with you what I think and you tell me if you agree. Um, put this story in today's light. <clears throat> what if this was happening today? And this Samaritan traveler, instead of investing his own time and money in helping this traveler, would have organized a protest of some kind to decry the horrible, horrible condition of the road to Jericho. And we need more <clears throat> streetlights. We need more policemen out there. We need more people to make this safe. Or what if he posted daily on his social media accounts about every act of violence that happened on the road to Jericho? Or maybe he would begin a petition to force the leaders of Jerusalem, the temple, to make this safe for us. Are you following me? It's very easy sometimes when we're faced with huge problems to replace me being personally involved to me becoming, getting on board with a cause. And when I get on board with a cause, and our social media culture today has so feeding this, it's like I feel like I'm doing something. I feel like I'm really making a difference. But friends, the answers to every big problem are found one-on-one -on -one in relationships, in groups, in, in lives being changed by lives. 
So before joining, and causes are not bad. Sometimes we need causes and campaigns, but before joining a cause, what if every time we get ready to join a cause, we ask, what am I personally doing to bind up the wounds of someone who's caught up in this? I can say I'm pro-life, but what am I really doing to help a young woman who has a troubled pregnancy? I can say, and, and this is convicting for me, because right now I'm in two discussion groups on how the church ought to be dealing with racial issues. Two discussion groups with mostly white people, just like me, talking about how we should make a difference. And it's like, well, we can't do it that way. It's like, who in my life is different than me? Who knows that struggle? who I can learn from and they can learn from me and we can forge that relationship. Answers to big problems are always found in relationships. And that's what God calls us to. As a church, we're committed to providing avenues for those relationships. We want all of our groups, we talked about groups earlier, we want all of our groups to be on task, not just studying and growing in our faith, but serving. And we, we've connected and are connecting with ministries in our community and in our region where you can go individually as a family or as a group and make a difference in people that are different than you, learn from them. We want our church to be a, a change agent for the gospel in this way. Now, it's worth pointing out that the traveler in this story was beaten and robbed. So it makes sense that the Samaritan who helped him opened his pocketbook and, and paid for his bills and, and helped him and put him up there. The takeaway is not that every answer is found in giving money to, to the person who's beat up. Sometimes it is, but it's not always. It's how is the best way, what's the best way to help this person who's broken, who's addicted, whose life has been ruined by bankruptcy or moral failure, whatever, whatever it is. Last year, our deacon ministry uh, of benevolence, the deacons who are in charge of benevolence, studied a book together and discussed a book called When Helping Hurts, which is another book I would recommend for you. But basically saying, we've got this benevolence ministry where we're helping people. We need to make sure that we're actually helping them. And sometimes, sometimes giving a check to someone, paying their rent, may or may not be helping them. We need to know when our attempt to help is actually hurting. And so, of course, God calls us to be prudent and wise, but he wants us to get involved in the stuff of people's lives. So Jesus asked the legal expert, who is the neighbor? And he reluctantly affirmed that it was the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go do likewise. And that's what he's saying to us too. Go do likewise. That's the message. We need... God's love to be shown to people all around us. Now, this parable uh, has probably been allegorized more than any other parable. But we're hopefully how to study parables. There's a bad way to study parables, and it's allegory. Give you a few of them. There have been some... Um, interpreters in the past that have allegorized every step of this story to where the traveler is Adam, the robbers are the devil and his angel, the beating is persuading him to sin, the priest is representing the Old Testament law, the Levite represents the Old Testament prophets, and the inn is the church where he takes him, and on and on and on with every little thing. Now, in order for an allegory to work, you have to assign meaning to everything, and allegories usually come out however the one who's assigning meaning gives because it's kind of arbitrary. So we're not allegorizing this passage. But parables 
Every parable has a level of meaning that's just the story. It's just the, this is the, the entertaining story. That's why Jesus told stories, because people want to listen. And every parable has some kind of a moral or ethical lesson that we need to learn. Now, some of them, that's it. Most of them also have something they teach us about the kingdom of God. And then some of them go that fourth level. And that, that's where this goes. So I don't think in an allegorizing way, Jesus is the good Samaritan, but I do see the good Samaritan as a type, as a prefiguring of the work of Christ in our lives. When he looks at someone like you or someone like me and he sees us beaten up on the road and he sees us beaten and robbed and not having any hope and, and other people are walking by, but Jesus is the one who comes and he says, okay, I'm not only gonna rescue you from this road, I'm gonna take you and I'm gonna care for you and you're not going to have to pay another dime for your own care because I've covering, I'm covering it all. I'm covering all of it for you. That's what our Savior does for us. And I wanted to go there as we wrap up because I think that helps us to know how we apply this. When we walk with someone who's broken, we are being the hands and feet of Jesus and representing through our own expenditure the work that Christ has done for us and wants to do for these broken people that we serve. So are we looking at the broken people that we know or that we will know through the eyes of Christ? That's the question. I want you to take some time to consider who your neighbor is this week and are you being a neighbor? Talk about it in your family. Talk about it in your group. Here's the diagnostic question that I want to leave you with. Am I moved with compassion towards those who've been beaten and robbed by life circumstances? Am I moved with compassion toward those who have been beaten and robbed by life circumstances? Let that question and where that guides us take us to the messy areas of life so that people are going to be redeemed and God will get some incredible glory from that. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you to help us to see with eyes of compassion the broken and hurting around us. Forgive us for walking by. There are times in our lives where we've, we've recognized a need and maybe you've even pointed it out to us by your Holy Spirit. And for whatever reason, because we felt too pious or we've been too busy, we've ignored those who are broken around us. I pray that you would save us from being just about a cause and give each of us some, some person or people in the coming days and weeks where we can get our hands dirty in the messiness of life for the cause of the gospel and that men and women will be set free from addictions and brokenness and find new hope and hurt broken marriages and physical illnesses and grief and all the things that mess us up in this life and that you will get all the credit and all the glory. Thank you for being our Savior, for paying the tab for us so that we can serve you. Amen.